I think it came from the word donderbus, uh-huh. which would be thunderpipe. Listening to the Muzzleloaders Podcast, the show where we talk about anything and everything black powder. Well, how's it going, everybody? You are listening to the Muzzleloaders Podcast, and uh, we have Gary Lewis back on the show today. Uh, Gary was on a podcast, oh man, several months ago now, and uh, we were talking about just hunting and kits and all that kind of fun stuff. And since then, uh, we've had, you know, met up with Gary at SHOT Show and uh, had several opportunities. Actually, I was able to be on his podcast and all that kind of fun stuff. And today we're going to be covering uh, the Blunderbuss. And uh, Gary has a lot of experience with the Blunderbuss, has been on hunts with the Blunderbuss. And so we're going to be tapping into some of his insights and wisdom with regard to that uh, muzzleloader. But first, uh, we have some exciting stuff to talk about with regard to bear hunting, apparently. And so... Uh, here, Gary, you're going on some bear hunts. I'm going on some bear hunts. So uh, where, where are you going to be hunting? Is that an Oregon hunt? Yeah, that's Oregon. I'll be over in the coast range. And so what I, I have is tag for the LC unit right now. And it, you know, it, it kind of burns a hole in your pocket of eventually. And I like to, you know, pick a specific time that I'm going to go hunt and look forward to it because that's a four-hour drive for me to get yeah. over there. And I've already been over there, but I was over there for turkey hunting. So the next trip is going to be the bear hunt with, uh, you know, major in bears, minor in turkey. Nice, nice. And just for all of you guys listening, it's like May 3rd right now as a time recording. This one's May probably, 3rd. yeah, this one's probably not going to go up for till after bear season. So we're, everything's legal. We're doing everything right. It just got a delayed posting. So don't worry about it. But uh, yeah, so. Um, I actually, I've, I've been doing some load development. I'm not sure if you've been, uh, seen our, our social media or not, but I've been doing a lot of shooting with the accurate LRX and I'm going to be taking that on a bear hunt just out here in, in our backyard. Uh, the, I have the Catherine Crick, oh man, it's, it's like three different units. I'm hunting Catherine Crick, but there's a few different units, uh, for spring bear. And I was able to draw that. And actually a couple of the guys here were also able to draw that. And so I'm, I've just been chomping at the bit my april has just been stacked full so i haven't been able to do any hunting and the weather has sucked and so uh, i'm excited last three weekends of may i'm i've just totally blocked out for doing some bear yeah. hunting so uh and it's fun i'm gonna be able to do it with a muzzleloader so that's always really exciting yeah that's really great the the thing that i've noticed over the last few years is people are following um my you know, I don't know if it's my advice, but they're following what I think they should be doing. Hunting bears more, hunting turkeys more. These are areas where we can get involved. A lot more people can get involved hunting turkeys and, and hunting bears. And it's just more time spent outside, especially, you know, our mule deer numbers are down. Mm-hmm. And, Way down. you know, it's, it's frustrating in, in our state, Oregon and in other parts of the West, but especially where we live. And so, yeah, let's hunt more bears. I agree. Yeah. I think so. Um, bears, coyotes, and turkeys. Um, those are all three. Those are three things that I did not hunt at all growing up. And so basically 
growing up, I just thought hunting was a fall activity. Like you'd start hunting yeah. in, you know, whatever for a week during rifle season or, and, and what have you. But really, you know, when you have, when you throw coyotes and turkeys and bear, like we throw all that stuff in the mix, you can really hunt year round. I mean, cause even in July when things are kind of slow, that's pup season. I mean, you can hunt coyotes in July. And so, yeah. um, I mean, that's a, and, and also that's predator control. You're talking about mule deer numbers. I mean, the, yeah trying to keep those predators down uh, really helps the the mule deer population. I actually know a guy who he's a very successful coyote hunter and he'll actually pick the areas that he wants to deer and elk hunt and he'll go in there intentionally and uh you know knock down the coyote numbers so that it helps the um you know the deer and elk populations flourish in that particular area. So yeah, that's really that's really helpful. I know somebody is doing that in my favorite unit <laughs> and nice. I, I don't know who it is but i'm thanking him for it <laughs> just keep going it actually works <laughs> yeah I'm, whoever you are out there just keep shooting coyotes yes. so <laughs> <laughs> awesome um well good stuff gary uh i do want to talk about the blunderbuss though and uh i am very excited to talk about this because this is uh a muzzleloader that i don't have very much experience with uh but i know that you do right. you've built a kit you have the flintlock and all that stuff and you even uh, hunted with it. And so I'm excited to tap into your knowledge. Um, and so let's go ahead and first dive into some of the history. Like where, where did this originate? Like when people, I think people usually think of just like, uh, you know, they think of pirates and like, you know, uh, a seafaring gun. Um, but how much that's true, how much of that is just, uh, like just legend. It's all true. It's all true. But first I gotta, we gotta, rewind a second for the sake of modesty because i am not a blunderbuss expert until <laughs> i got a kit from muzzleloaders.com yeah. <laughs> which was last year and i i you know it took a while for the kit to show up you know once the once i placed the order and it took a while for the kit to show up and because it was in production and you guys have them in stock now, but I was really, really looking forward to this kit. And I put another project on hold so that I could build this one. And I've, I've really learned a lot. And most of what I learned about the blunderbuss, which I paid no attention to, it was like everybody else. Mm. Um, I paid no attention to it. I knew that pilgrims had these things because I saw pictures of them, you know, <laughs> line drawings and cartoons and stuff like that. But, you know, it's real. It's true. And when you think about the kinds of things that a blunderbuss would be used for, it would be used on a ship or on a boat or in a stagecoach because it's so light portable it doesn't take up as much room as a as a rifle so if you're going to have to arm 30 people really fast aboard a, aboard a ship you can have 30 of these in a locker and you open the locker and you hand them out everybody knows how to use them they're all the same each one goes to a different guy and they take their positions on the ship mm -hmm. and they can control, uh, you know, the, the decks if, if people are armed with this weapon. And 
you have a stagecoach. It can be there for the people who, you know, are, are riding in the coach to protect themselves against um, highway bandits, which were a problem in lots of different places, not just in the United States, but in England and, you know, the back, the back roads in Ireland and Scotland. Mm-hmm. This is a significant historic weapon and a tool. So then, you know, we live in the West and, you know, at the end of the Oregon Trail and it, for a certainty, these guns were in the wagons of the people that were headed west. They were the cheapest guns to buy. Mm-hmm. You know, you stop at a hardware store. These were the cheapest guns to buy. They didn't take up a lot of room in the wagon. And anybody can use them, man, woman, or child, if they if they know how to load them. And they're, they're fierce. You know, yeah. when this thing goes off, you better be on on the safe side of it. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. Well, and I think that you see a lot of that kind of thing, um, even as late as like the World Wars, where you have like the trench gun, and you just have a gun that you're able to control, like in in uh, quarters, you're able to control certain amounts of territory, and um, you don't have to be particularly accurate in those uh, t- sorts of quarters. But I think one of the things that's really interesting about the blunderbuss, and uh, similar to a shotgun, I suppose, but you can actually use a, a like a solid lead projectile in addition to being able to use shot um, and have like that shotgun aspect too. Right. So I could load this this particular gun that, from the kit that you guys build and deliver. It is rifled for a fifty four caliber. So I I can take the same bullet that I use in my deer rifle and and shoot it out of this gun. Yeah, totally. And I think that that's the that's the cool part about the versatility um, with the blunderbuss as far as its practical uses for today. Um, but I think that uh, as far as the history goes, I think there's a lot of really interesting history around muzzleloading. And I think that a lot of people into muzzleloading, I think there's there's two kinds of people. There's people that are into muzzleloading that uh, use it to like extend a hunting season. They use it to, uh, you know, sort of like we were talking about at the beginning of the show, just hunt more frequently and more often and in different ways and then you have people that are very much into the history um and i as much as i love history i am definitely a lot more of a hunt like i enjoy hunting hunting is kind of my my first passion um and so that the history aspect as i know certain aspects of it but there's so so much i mean it really firearm history has dictated uh, you know, a lot of American history. It's dictated a lot. I mean, uh, British history, all these different cultures uh, have been drastically impacted by the effect of, uh, you know, different weapons. Just like you have the Stone Age, you have the Iron Age, uh, and then you introduce firearms. Like weapons really are kind of the backbone of history and growth. Um, and so there's so much epic, really cool stuff when it comes to muzzleloading. And I think the blunderbuss is a really key piece of that. It, it a lot of it is wrapped up right here in this package. That's what um, that's why I have this here so that it helps me remember what we're talking about. The this particular gun doesn't come with a ramrod, and mm-hmm. some of them would have come with a ramrod, and some of them wouldn't. It, 
you, depending on how you're going to load and use this, and and the speed with which you need it, um, you know there there might not be a ramrod available, but I carry one in my kit. So each one of my muzzle loaders has its own possible bag with its own tools mm-hmm. that are specific to each gun. And I have a lot of muzzle loaders now, and that's the only way that I can keep it straight in my own brain. <laughs> um, but looking at this gun here, this part is is uh, this this part of the stock is filled out more than you would see on maybe some of the other blunder buses that you would see in pictures mm-hmm. but it totally um legitimate to the time period because for a while it this kind of a, a palm swell was favored mm-hmm. In, in parts of um, parts of the old west, the frontier, and sometimes it was referred to as a perch belly. So yeah. that's what I think of when I look at this as a perch belly. Sure. And the what one of my favorite stories from when I was growing up was called the matchlock gun, and it told the story of a family that had to defend themselves against Indian attack Mm -hmm. at night. And they had a gun that was like this, except they used a matchlock Mm -hmm. and the matchlock being one of the predecessors to the flintlock. And it's a, it was a great story. Well told. I listened to that story over and over again. My mom would read it to me. And then eventually I got a record of it. And that, was imprinted in my psyche. I never thought I would have a gun like that until I got this thing. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, is a flintlock. And these guns are also available in a percussion lock. But I like having the flint because it ties it to a specific point in history. And so then I would say this gun fits into that period of time between the Revolutionary War and the Oregon Trail, the, the high points of the Oregon Trail. So let's mm-hmm. say 1775 to 1850, 1860, a gun like this would have been in common use. Yeah, totally. And I think that, um, yeah, it's really exciting. I think that period of time is one of my particular favorites, like that for the frontier era. Um, and I just actually, we just, uh, recorded a podcast with, uh, Paul from the Orion foundation and we were talking about different aspects of muzzleloader history. And, um, uh, one of the things that he and I agreed on was the fact that the frontier is just, uh, symbolizes a symbolizes freedom in a lot of ways. Like there's parts of parts of the whole, you know, parts of America that were just in your backyard that were totally unexplored. And, um, you know, there's just something really exciting about that where there's there's a, a certain aspect of history and a certain aspect of legend and they kind of get blended together and, um, you know, just really makes for excellent stories. Uh, but uh, another thing is like the blunderbuss today. So 
you built this kit and um, I guess before we dive into that, what was the kit build process like? Um, did you, was it difficult? Cause I know you've built, you have a lot of other experience building other kits too. Okay. So this maybe is the sixth kit gun that I've built and I was excited about it because I thought, yeah, this is going to be easy. It's going to go together quickly. And it didn't necessarily go together quickly because <laughs> the, I had to work around a an issue where the barrel furniture and the and the stock furniture weren't aligned the way that <laughs> I would have liked them to be. Yeah, and I can't complain about that because that's what you sign up for when you take on one of these kit projects is mm -hmm. there's going to be something you've got to fix. Yeah. And so then invariably when I run into a little bit of a roadblock, instead of trying to bolt through it and figure it out on my own, I take it to my favorite old guy and he'll look at it and then he'll tell me what he thinks I ought to do with it. <laughs> so a guy from the shooting club and, and he's a guy I used to work with at Nosler and Bill Lewis, and so he helped me see what um, I should do to, to you know, make that work. And my dad has also functioned in that role mm, <laughs> as yeah. well. I'll just let, you know, okay, dad, what do you see here? <sighs> and then the dad looks at it. And he, you know, he sees it from a different perspective, and sometimes we're both right, you know, and, and sometimes you know, my way of fixing it would be just as good as his way of fixing it. But it's, it's a great way to connect with your dad or, or your son or daughter working on a project like this. And my daughter, as you know, my daughter built her own tradition. Yeah. <laughs> Muzzle loader kit last year. So And smoked it, an it, antelope with it too, which is quite an accomplishment. Yeah, she got an antelope with it. So, but to answer your question, the first thing you do if you want to do it right, you've got to try to put the kit together without doing any work on, on the furniture. You just try to put it together. And I like to have a little notepad next to me. And then I write down each item that I see that needs to be fixed. Like, okay, I need to remove some wood from the barrel mm -hmm. channel in the stock. And then I need to remove a little wood to allow the tang maybe to fit where it's supposed to here in inside of the stock and then on the uh, brass furniture mm. maybe I need to remove you know an eighth of an inch of the trigger guard material and eventually I'll have a little list it'll be 10 or 12 items and then I'll work through that and I'll start checking the items off and okay got that done got that done and then I'm putting the gun together again I probably put this thing together a dozen times or more I probably two dozen times before I put it together for good yeah because I had to get every little aspect of it right and then I'd take it apart there's not a lot of pieces to it mm -hmm. and so I didn't have trouble keeping track of the pieces. I kept everything together in the box and I have Ziploc bags and I 
you know, if I have to, I label it. You know, at one point I had two muzzleloader projects going simultaneously, and so I wanted to make <laughs> sure I didn't mess that yeah. up and mix the parts up. But the the barrel. So you have three choices as I see it on how to finish the barrel. Mm. You can blue it. You can do the plum brown finish, or you can just leave it in the white. Mm. And I contemplated leaving it in the white because I knew that it would start to change color eventually, you know, the more I handled it and used it and shot it. Mm. But I felt like I was kind of taking the easy way out. <laughs> and the that would be what you would do if if it was the cheapest gun you could buy, it wouldn't, you know, back in the old days, it would be left in the white. Mm-hmm. And you could take that gun and use it until finally it, um, you know, ceased to function or you didn't take care of it well. I, I went ahead and blued this one. And as I did my research, I realized that a lot of times these guns were blued or browned depending on the fashion of the time and place. Mm -hmm. And the blue finish is just as historically accurate as a, as a brown finish. So I I went ahead and blued this one. I think the bluing process was a little easier than, than the browning process, but you know, the browning process is fun too. Yeah, totally. So I did that. And then I started working on the stock and eventually I realized what I really wanted was a beat up looking used looking stock. But to get there, I had to do all the work to make it nice and get it all finished. And then that's when I took it out and um, started whaling on the stock with, um, you know, a crowbar mm-hmm. and I hit it, wrapped it with chains. I stood on it in the driveway and, you know, beat, beat it up a little bit and put some gouges and stuff. And then, so you could, you could start to see some of these gouges in there mm-hmm. just makes it look like it's been used because I didn't want to hang a new blunder bus up on the wall. Yeah. I wanted to hang up a good beat up looking used blunder bus <laughs> on the wall that someday, you know, one of my great grandkids will say, yeah, grandpa used that gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Cool. And um, then I, mean, I had an old deer hide, and I, you know I used that on the on the four stock. And then of course this is my trophy from my big gobbler that I killed with the gun. Well, I want to uh, segue now with I mean, perfect there into the uh, hunting. So uh, as, for our listeners, if you guys haven't uh, heard the first podcast, check out the link above to uh, our podcast with Gary Lewis, and uh, also check out the link i'll put a link to the his kit build so we have a, a video of his kit build for that uh, for the blunderbuss specifically um but gary is a professional hunter and outdoor rider and so uh hunting is just the name of the game and when you got this blunderbuss you did some pretty exciting stuff with it so i kind of want to hear about uh, the turkey hunt that you're able to go on with it yeah so i thought okay well what can i use this for and as i was getting the kit into shape I thought I was going to take it on a grouse hunt, but as it turned out, you know, the best grouse hunting is in September and October. And by the mm-hmm. time I had this gun finished, it was November. 
and then I could see that a fall turkey hunt was probably the thing to do. And then, of course, in Oregon, we have a long fall season that ends at the end of December, unless you have private land to hunt on in Western Oregon anyway. And I did have private land to hunt on, and so we were able to extend that season into till, to January 31st. And, you know, hunting the, the big thunder chicken turkey, you know, if you will, <laughs> kind of reminds me of the uh, the name of this gun, the blunderbuss. Where does that come from? You know, it comes, they think it came from the word donderbuss, uh-huh. which would be thunderpipe. Okay. Okay. And so then basically, you know, this, this gun is a thunder pipe and, you know, it, that's kind of what it is. When yeah. I first shot it, I loaded it with 80 grains of triple F and then I primed it with a four F. Uh-huh. Like go X or shoot center or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I put just a very li- a very small charge of shot in it, um, just you know conserving ammunition, I guess. But mm-hmm. I definitely using more powder than I probably needed to. And wow, it was loud. Of course, I'm <laughs> shooting it in my neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow that was loud but then i had to shoot it again too because i wanted um i wanted to try it on paper and see if i could hit hit my target and what my you know what my pattern might be Uh but the, the funny thing about shooting this gun is that you don't have a bead you don't have a sight you've got to cover yeah. up what you're shooting at. Yeah, I was wondering about with that. This, with this big bell. So, real quickly, what what I did was, here I've got my target out in front of me, a turkey target on a piece of plywood. Uh-huh. And so then I come in from the side, and I'm covering up the turkey with that bell i can't Mm. see the target anymore yeah but i know i'm on it Mm -hmm. squeeze the trigger and boom and you know smoke it's a big curtain of smoke and then you walk up and check so (laughs) that's what i had to do when i had a live turkey in front of me too yeah and um i guess the loading process with that so uh you said you used 80 grains of triple F and then do you have just sort of is like a plastic wad sort of like a shotgun wad or uh, how does that work? So I pour the powder in and then I put a fiber wad in on top of the powder. A fiber, okay. Mm-hmm. And then I poured for the full hunting load a one and a quarter ounces of number six shot on top of that. Mm-hmm. And then I used two paper well, not paper, but they're, they're real stiff little cards, uh-huh. 54 caliber. And those I put down on top of that to provide 
compression and security for the load. That way it didn't like fall and, out because there's little yeah. beads, you know, it's a, like a bullet usually have the, the pressure of the bullet against the bore, but with that is just kind of beads, right? Like little balls. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a muzzle loading shotgun that I've had for a long time, Austin and Halleck designed by my friend Ray Crow. Mm-hmm. And I've hunted with that quite a bit. And for that one, I used a, an actual uh, 12-gauge uh, plastic wad. Okay. Interesting. So in that one, I'm actually building it like a shotgun shell without... Without the shell itself. The, the shell itself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, this one, this one's a little different, almost more like a uh, like what you do for like a revolver almost where you have like a little fiber wad that goes in between the yeah. powder and the ball. And then you have like uh, something to hold the the shot in place. And does that, does that uh, card, it just gets pushed out, right? It doesn't get burnt up or it, anything. It just blows out. Got it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And so um, I know before the show, we were talking about different uh, ranges, like ineffective ranges. And I think you said you were going to be doing some testing with that. Uh, but just like off yeah. the top of your head, like, what do you think would be the like the optimal range with that? What I turkeys? think is going to happen is that I'm going to find out that 20 yards is pretty close to what my maximum effective range is going to be. Yeah, that, that makes and sense. And I'm going to shoot it at 15, 20, 25, and 30 and see how it lines up. But that's what I'm expecting to find is that it, I will end up around 20 yards. That makes sense. I. I know with like a, a regular shotgun, um, you know, I, I personally about 40 yards, but, uh, there's been times where I've seen some absolutely incredible shots with just standard shotguns. Um, but with that, you have chokes, you know, you have chokes you can put on, uh, you could put a red dot. I mean, you can be, have all kinds of tricked out stuff with a blunderbuss. You can barely even aim hardly, you know, it's like it's point and yeah. shoot. And so you got, I mean, I think 20 yards seems like a pretty, pretty standard, um, a standard range, I, even at 20 yards, do you think you can aim pretty effectively at that distance or, um, is that getting I'm, pretty touchy I'm convinced I can, I'm convinced I can, but you know, all the times I've shot it, I've hit what I've been aiming at. Yeah. Cause I think it's one thing to have like, what's the maximum distance that the, the shot will pattern and hold together tight enough to where it's effective. And then like, also what's the maximum distance that you can actually effectively aim with it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's those are two different issues, aren't they? Yeah, it'll be interesting so to I see. Would, I could, sh- I would expect that I could kill a squirrel with this further out than I could kill a turkey with it, because with a turkey, you got to hit it hard, and you've got to get at least six pellets in the brain or the brainstem or the neck. Yeah. Okay. And when I don't have six pellets on the target, that's I've exceeded my effective range with a squirrel. You know, I, I think I could probably get a squirrel a little further out. with this gun. Yeah, that makes sense too. And also um, with the Turkey, you have a very small target, especially with the blunderbuss. Cause I know a lot of people will body shoot turkeys and I personally have not found that to be very effective at all. I always go for no, the head. Yeah. I, I just always, I always say that when people are body shooting turkeys, I'm like, what? Why? Like, I'd, yeah. I'd be interested to talk to somebody like that in depth and just like really develop, like get their school of thought. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, with that, like a squirrel, you can like, I mean, the 
kill zone of a squirrel was pretty much the whole thing. Like you don't, you can't hit the tail, but yeah. like everything else, if you get a couple pellets in there, it's probably going to die. But yeah. with a turkey, yeah. yeah, with a turkey, it's a different story because they have they're bonier. They you have a little tiny head surface you have to try and hit. So, um, and that's one of the things. I just a little side tangent that I want to go on because I really like turkey hunting and I think it gets kind of I think it's undervalued. Turkey hunting is a challenge. Like it's not as challenging yeah. as elk hunting. Um, but I view turkey hunting almost like elk hunting light. You know, it's a similar experience where you're doing the calling, you're playing the game, and um, you know, it's like an elk hunting mini game. Like it's really, really an enjoyable and challenging experience. Um, and if you throw a blunderbuss or archery into the mix, it becomes even more challenging. And so uh, I think in most places, um, tur- you know, you, turkey season has been running for a couple weeks, or I know like in Pennsylvania, it just started up that you go out to, you know, go buy a turkey tag, you know, head out this weekend, go give it a try. Um, because it's just another way to get out in the woods, enjoy and experience the outdoors and have a great time. So soapbox, yeah. I'm getting off the soapbox now, rant over. <laughs> well, I know that there's some people out there who are going to buy this blunderbuss kit. They're going to put it together. And by the time they get it done, they're going to love it. Yeah. And somebody's going to say, I'm going to try to go for the grand slam of turkeys with the blunderbuss. Yeah. And what a great achievement that would be. Totally. Totally. I think killing one turkey with a blunderbuss is pretty, is pretty impressive achievement. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I would really like to hunt grouse with this again and, and hunt turkeys with it. So I got to say though, I had shot flintlocks before, but other people's flintlocks. Uh-huh. And is this the first flintlock you've owned? It's the second flintlock that I've owned. Oh, okay. And the the other one was the one that I got from you guys and Bill, and on a Kentucky rifle. But it's really been a learning experience for me, and when when somebody hands you their flintlock gun at a um, rendezvous for instance yeah and they they want you to shoot it they've already got everything set up for you and it's going to be successful okay and so the first time i shot this gun success Mm -hmm. second time i shot it success you know i got it to fire no problem and then on my turkey hunt it wasn't quite successful right out of the gate. And there was <laughs> I remember hearing this a couple story. of couple of things involved. Yeah. And um but what I what I came to understand and realize is you gotta micromanage the flint. Yep. And you know, maybe it was you that said that to me, but that totally sums it up for me. Because every time that flint strikes the frizzing little particles, little hot flaming particles come off of that flint mm-hmm. and end up in the powder. And so your flint gets duller and shorter each time you fire. So then yeah. you got to advance the flint a little bit and you'll make sure that if you're wrapping the flint in something that it's not getting in the way mm-hmm. and what happened with me is I had, I thought my hunt was over and I wasn't going to get a turkey and <laughs> I was leaving 
And the turkeys showed up as I was leaving, and I'd already poured the powder out of the pan and put the gun in its case, and I was I was headed home. <laughs> and then here comes the turkeys, and so I, I get an immediate adrenaline rush. Yeah. And I'm all fired up because it's seven gobblers, I think. There's they're just showing up, you know, they're just walking <laughs> through where I had hoped to see them all day long and they weren't there. Uh-huh. And so then I poured powder into the pan. I poured too much in, you know, total beginner. Yeah. And then, then I make my stock on this bunch of turkeys and I'm sneaking up on them and I get to where, I can see them and they're all, you know, they're looking at me and they're moving around, you know, and so I pick <laughs> one out that's separate from the others and cover it up and I squeeze the trigger. Well, I, I, I cocked it. I didn't cock it till I was ready to, you know, ready to fire. Yeah. I cocked it, squeezed and it goes boom. I thought this was called the thunder, the thunder pipe, <laughs> not the thump pipe. <laughs> so what had happened was I had shortened the clip enough that I think my little leather um, binding was actually hitting the prison. Oh yeah. Yep. The total rookie mistake. And so i I fixed that. I just trimmed. No, I, I rolled it back with my thumb, wiped some saliva on the flint, and then lined up on a turkey again and covered it up with that muzzle and boom. And when I say boom, what I actually mean is it struck sparks into the pan and then it fizzed. And I'm sitting there, you know, holding it on the turkey, and it's fizzing in the pan right here, you know, in front of my eye. Yeah. And then, then it ignites. <laughs> and I'm I'm exaggerating the recoil. It's not like that at all. It's the recoil on this is minimal. It's all part of the theatrics. But, it's all, you know, it's how you tell oh, the yeah, story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, a dead turkey. Um, one and a quarter inch long spurs. He is just laying flat out on the ground. Yeah. I mean, as, as dead a turkey as I've ever shot with any other shot. <laughs> and um, a nine and a quarter inch beard, you know, just a big bird. Yeah, Wasn't nice. the biggest of that group, but it was a, it was a trophy bird for sure. Totally. Yeah. That's crazy. Especially for Oregon. Like, I mean, <laughs> nine and a quarter is great for around here. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's that's one thing I love about muzzle loading is the complicated nature of it and the fact that uh, it's not like a center fire where you can go down buy a box of shells and have a pretty decently working load just immediately. Uh, muzzle loading takes some TLC, you know, it takes a lot of experience, hard work, dedication to make sure that you can find a load that works well and then uh, flintlock just adds an entirely another a new aspect full of moving parts and um, potential mechanical and chemical failures and just like uh, that added challenge really is extremely rewarding and um, that's why 
I actually have not I have not flintlock hunted yet, and I am excited to uh, do that this fall. Uh, is it's my goal to do that during deer season if I can draw a deer tag. I should be able to draw a deer tag, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, if I draw well, a deer tag, I, I, I highly, I highly recommend this flintlock blunderbuss experience, and especially if you've got a place where you can, and I know you do where you live. Yeah, you probably have some trails that you could walk down and find some grouse, and you know that would be awesome shooting grouse with this gun oh yeah all over the place it's a it's a total blast yeah. i love living in eastern oregon it's great <laughs> yeah there's a lot of people who wish they lived in eastern oregon yeah a lot of people who don't even know what we're talking about yep. yeah and they can stay really away nice. all the people that don't they they want yeah. yeah they stay away but this is, <laughs> just, just kidding you can come over here and enjoy it too it's it's there's enough for everybody so um yeah well gary i really appreciate it do you have any other notes on the blunderbuss before we wrap up here well, I've got, you know, I've got a lot to say on this subject. I, I really, I really, really recommend it. I've learned so much from building these kits. I'm never going to be a gunsmith, and I don't ever pretend to have those gunsmithing schools, skills, but I've learned enough that I know and value what a gunsmith has to offer. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like I've learned things about my forefathers and the pioneers through these experiences, because they would have had to fix their own guns in a lot of cases, mm -hmm. because who else was going to be there to do it? And you, you either fixed it or you threw it away or you kept it for parts to fix another gun. And, these these um, flintlock blunderbuss kits, they've taught me a lot. Mm -hmm. And I highly recommend the whole experience. And, you know, I'm eventually I'm going to hang this on the wall and it's going to have a few stories that go along with it. And I'm going to pass it on to one of my kids or grandkids and, and they're going to say, Grandpa used that gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i think that's that's a cool thing about wall hanging muzzleloaders too is that uh you know some people buy them just to hang them on the wall and that's fine um they're excellent decorations i love guns and so the more guns you have the better but i think it's cool to to use them to have stories that go with them then hang it on the wall so that it's like oh yeah i remember that time that i did x y or z with that muzzleloader and you know there it sits and you know and that that then it's sort of like a, it has an extra value when you pass it on you know you've like you've installed memories into uh that muzzleloader that you pass on to your kids you know yeah and i think they make great gifts and so after i've had this for a while it's i'm going to give it to somebody they're not going to inherit it in you know, in my estate someday, they're going to, yeah. I'm going to hand it to them and maybe take them hunting with it. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Share the memories. Yeah. Totally. Awesome. So I, I think that's the real value value here. I agree. Yeah. And I think that's the thing with kits too, is just, um, you know, anything that you do with your own hands is always going to be more rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So well, a lot of these guns were decorated with a, with a dragon lock, uh -huh. uh, a dragon on the back. And it, 
it really has to do with the fire breathing nature of a gun like this because interesting you look at it you you hold it and this is a fire breathing um tool yeah here and and in in the hands of somebody who knows how to use it it was a force to be reckoned with totally yeah i think that uh, the blunderbuss is really it's one of a kind you know and um i think that it's it's its position in history and its historical significance along with its uh the hunting challenge that it presents now and uh the you know the the additional prowess required to use it on a on a hunting trip is uh really what kind of distinguishes it even even amongst other traditional muzzleloaders and flintlocks mm -hmm. so people say well what's the deal with the muzzle you know why is why does it have that muzzle like that mm -hmm. well it is fast to load. Yeah. It is so much faster to load than my 50 caliber Kentucky rifle where I have to be real careful about getting the, all the grains down mm -hmm. in the muzzle. This thing, it goes in fast. The shot goes in fast and I'm in business quickly with this gun. Yeah. So reloads are a lot quicker. If I was on a horse, I would have no trouble loading this gun even if I was trotting or galloping on a horse. Really? Really? Do, yeah. you, do you hunt from and horses ever or use horses in hunting? I have hunted horseback before, but I've also shot mounted archery. Oh, interesting. Okay? And, you know, and that's totally a, another skill set uh, that a person can develop. But having shot mounted archery, you know, where you shoot at a gallop. Mm-hmm off the back of a horse um i'd go with the blunderbuss <laughs> <laughs> seriously well, I, I have a yeah. hard enough time using like a compound bow standing perfectly still like i have a hard enough time hitting my target doing that i can't imagine having two you know having a moving platform trying to shoot a bow you know that'd be crazy to to be able to shoot a bow off the back of a, a horse at, at full gallop you actually shoot while, while all four feet are off the ground. So in that moment where, you, where you're flying yep. on the horse, that's when you release the arrow. And then at the next target, you, you have another arrow on the string, and it's just like this motion that the arrows are in your hand and they're coming out of your bow hand and, and going on the string and you're, and you're pulling back. It's just you're shooting off. The way that I learned, you're shooting off the other side of the bow, uh -huh. and it's a it's a short bow. It's not like a long bow. It's a short horse bow. Wow, that's crazy. That's an awesome skill to learn. I mean, you know, pretty soon when, when we go back to the Stone Age, I mean, those kinds of things are going to be really important to know. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that um, I was when I did that. I was on a horse that was too good for me. Oh yeah, and. Both me and the horse knew it. Um, you know, and I could shoot. The, I could shoot the bow okay, but I I couldn't. I couldn't hit my targets. I could get the arrows loose. Uh huh. But yeah. Oh man, it was fun. That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay, so then I want to ask you about the flint. Uh huh. Because maybe you know something about the flint. Sure. Do you guys? When I ordered the flints, I ordered them from somebody else because you guys were out of stock. Do you keep flints in stock most of the time? 
Um, flints are a tough one. We're currently in the process of trying to figure out a way to increase our flint, uh, like keeping more flints on hand. Uh, but yeah. we, we do keep like the, uh, I think they're, they're the seventh, 18th century flints. Um, and they're slightly oversized, which is kind of nice. Cause then you can nap them down to the shape that you need to have them in They're musket flints. And so, um, that those, were, now, did I, did I catch it right? Did you say they're 18th century flints? Yes. Yep. They are authentic 18th century flints from the Nepalese cache. This is so cool. This is such a great aspect of building a flintlock gun today uh-huh. because all of these parts that are on this gun are all modern manufacture, mm-hmm. except for that flint. That flint was made 300 years ago probably by a prisoner, you know, a political prisoner or a prisoner of war Mm -hmm. in a prison um, somewhere in Nepal or depending where you buy these things from Britain or from France. Mm -hmm. And one of these people, they would wake up in the morning, they would eat whatever, you know, gruel or whatever (laughs) was given to them. And then they make flints all day long. And so they could make from what I've been able to learn about it. They, they would make between 1500 and 3000 flints a day. Wow. That's crazy. And they would, and that, I guess that makes sense because some of the ones, so we get them and um, they're authentic, you know, like, like you're saying, like, I think, I think you probably got some of the same, like from the same cash. Um, and some of them are really pretty like pretty ready to go others are a little bit more raw and require some additional napping and so that makes sense like i mean if they're kind of busting them out like that uh just getting them ready and i figure i mean i'm trying to think that time of the, that time in history uh I'm, i think there was a tremendous need for flints you know there's a lot of war going on that time of history so okay so now picture picture this Darren binder it's 1830 and the percussion cap is coming into popular use. Mm-hmm. And now it's 1835 and 1840, and people aren't buying flint like yeah. they were. All of a sudden, this guy who's cornered the market on flints and he's selling them to these militaries, you know, and to these <laughs> people who have to make them to, to build their own fires and stuff like that, flint and steel, uh, fire making all of a sudden that market is just drying up mm-hmm. and he's got a whole warehouse full of flints because he didn't see this yeah, he <laughs> new technology. technology. <laughs> yeah. So what's he going to say? Well, we'll just keep them in this warehouse. You know, people will, they'll, they know they, this they will <laughs> it'll come back into popular use. You know, we'll, we'll sell them again later. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah, it probably it was a little longer than he'd anticipated. No, I don't think he probably would have guessed it was another 150 years for them to come back into popularity. <laughs> right. Yeah. And how do you, you know, what do you do with all of that stuff in a warehouse for for um, you know 300 years? I guess with the case of Nepal, maybe they got extra warehouse space. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's, he was probably kind of like you know all the people now like about the internet, like oh you know it's it's gonna die off. They'll 
they'll be back yeah. in no time, you know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. yeah. So anyway, I I think it's so amazing that I can hunt with this tool and the success of it hinges on a part that was made 300 years ago. Yeah. Seriously. That's pretty that's pretty cool. I think that's the coolest thing about the those flints that they have in the, in the Nepalese cache is that those flints are they are, were legitimately made in like the 1700s. And so it was the additional aspect of, you know, being a part of muzzleloading and participating in the history, you have these flints available to you that are literally a piece of history, like a part of history yeah. that has just survived for the last, you know, that you know however long, 250 years and is around today for you to use and still works, you know, and that's just, it's incredible. It's super cool. I think they would just cut my head off if I was working in that factory. I don't know if I could, if I could <laughs> make a plan. Could stand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think you'd probably figure they would it just out. They would say, you know, he's a useless eater. Let's <laughs> just chop his head off. You make it make a thousand of a day, you'd probably get pretty good at it after a while. He'd probably be the yeah, expert. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. I love I love the history. Well, I I don't know. I, I'm glad we got to talk about that flint, the yeah. flint aspect because I wanted to hear what you guys had and, and I suspected you had some from the Nepal um supply but i wasn't sure about that yeah well and nowadays there's a, a whole other thing where people are using uh, they'll use like agate flints and they're like saw cut and they're like perfectly um like their uniform and all that stuff and uh that those are a little more brittle i've found uh just because mm. they're not um they, they i i don't know i mean this is all me assuming i don't really know the structure behind rocks but um, I think that because they're saw cut rather than napped, because when you nap it, the rock oh. is breaking with its own natural um, edges. Whereas when you saw right. cut it, it is not, it's not breaking to its natural edges. It's, you know, breaking yeah. to a man-made edge. And so they work yeah. well, they spark well, but they, they don't have the same durability that you'll see out of like a, you know, one of these Nepalese flints. Yeah. But yeah, there's all kinds cool. of, there's so much cool stuff involved in that, but um, well, Gary, I really appreciate you joining us on this podcast. Uh, it's been a lot of fun talking about the blunderbuss and flints and hunting and all that kind of, all of my favorite things. So, <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. Awesome. Um, well, Gary, uh, if I guess if you guys listening, if you haven't heard of Gary Lewis, check out, uh, his articles. He just recently put out an article, uh, for, uh, it's a story of the whole story of his turkey hunt in the uh, muzzle blast magazine. And so you can subscribe to that and check the article out that way. Um, and uh, Google Gary Lewis. He's got blogs and all kinds of awesome content and does a lot of muzzleloader hunting. And so really good, valuable stuff there. Uh, and if also you, the podcast. Yes. Ballistic the, the, Chronicles. the ballistic Chronicles podcast uh, is another form of content um, that uh, I, I personally love podcasts and not just cause I'm on them all the time. I actually like listening to them. So uh, the Ballistic Chronicles is an awesome podcast to listen to when you're commuting to work or doing the dishes or or just looking to consume some audio content. And uh, Gary talks about coyote hunting to bear hunting to pretty much every kind of hunting you can possibly imagine and, and different types of shooting and all that kinds of stuff. So um, really excellent a wealth of knowledge there too. And uh, are there any other things that uh, people can check out if they want to see your content? 
Okay, so Frontier Unlimited is our television show, uh-huh. and we're uh, you know easy way to watch that any time of the day is HuntChannel.tv, and then click Hunt on Channel. shows and click on Frontier Unlimited is the name of the show. HuntChannel.tv. Mm-hmm. Cool, awesome, yeah. So definitely check that out. Um, there's you know there you can never have enough quality hunting shows, and uh, especially trying to watch it on TV, you're always trying to catch it at the right time. So it's nice. You can watch that anytime you want. So, um, awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Gary, you guys, if you are listening to this, make sure you leave a review. And, uh, and if you're watching on YouTube, like comment, subscribe, hit the bell to receive notifications. Whenever we post content, uh, usually post about two videos a week, all muzzleloader related stuff and, uh, how from how to's to product reviews to, uh, load development, all that kinds of stuff, and uh, pretty much anything black powder. And, uh, yeah, thank you guys so much for watching, and we'll see you on the next one.